Hello, and welcome to the Take as Directed podcast. I'm Steve Morrison, Senior Vice President and Director of the CSIS Global Health Policy Center. Today, we are pleased to hear from Owen Ryan, outgoing Executive Director of the International AIDS Society. That society is responsible for organizing every two years the global HIV-AIDS gathering. Owen, congratulations on your service as executive director. You've completed a four-year run. It's been uh, very impressive, and you've left in your legacy a much stronger International AIDS Society, and thank you for your service. Oh, thanks, Steve. That's very kind of you. Now, um, we just completed AIDS 2018 in Amsterdam. It covered the full gamut uh, of issues. President Clinton was there on Friday to help close it. Congresswoman Barbara Lee was there to close it and also to point ahead to the 2020 AIDS conference, which will be in Oakland and San Francisco. In Amsterdam, over 15,000 participants, very strong support from the Dutch government. And, uh, and, and as is always the case, lots going on. So our purpose in talking with Owen today is twofold. One is to hear his fresh insights into exactly what happened in this um, gathering in Amsterdam, what were the most important outcomes and insights, and then to get your insights looking ahead to uh, Oakland and San Francisco in, in 2020. We last held the conference in the United States in 2012, a presidential election year, and the first time that the conference had returned to the United States after a 22-year gap owing to a congressionally imposed migrant ban on persons living with HIV. That ban was lifted, first year of the Obama administration, allowing the the conference to return to the United States, and we're delighted. Eight years later, we will be seeing uh, another conference, 2020, in Oakland and San Francisco. Um, I want to add also that we have a new executive director coming in uh, to succeed, Owen, Kevin Osborne, very happy to see him in the chair and for co-chairs of the conference in 2020 Anton Pozniak from the UK has been has been named and has become very active and the US co-chair as I understand still to be announced soon so thank you Owen uh, for being with us and thank you for your service and leadership of the International AIDS Society over the past 4 years why don't we start just tell us uh, as you look back what were the big science and policy takeaways from last week? Well, as you said, Steve, it was a really big week. I mean, we even surpassed the attendance totals that we had expected, seeing close to 16,000 people on site. And that's just in the main conference portion. That doesn't count the thousands of people who attended the free and open Global Village space. Um, I think for those who were on site saw some pretty key major stories. I'll probably just hit a few of them. And I know for folks listening, they'll they'll and who were in attendance will probably note I missed a few. But one of the big scientific um, findings coming out was a further validation of the mantra U equals U, so undetectable equals untransmissible. And what we found was the Partners 2 study. This was a follow-on from a study that happened before studying zero discordant couples, a case where one partner is HIV positive and one partner is HIV negative. In this case, where the HIV positive partners of viral load is undetectable, Partners 1 found for heterosexual couples that there was no chance of transmission. Um, that was some years ago. This follow-on story was specific to uh, homosexual couples, and um, in the end found that across 70 
75,000 sex acts, there was zero transmission uh, in couples where the HIV-positive partner was virally suppressed. Uh, this is really big news, right? This is not um, something that we knew before. Evidence wasn't clear, and people thought that it might not be as apparent in homosexual couples. And so this was really big news of the week. There were two other science stories that were more mixed news. We saw a bunch of clinical data on dolutegravir, again showing how much this drug performs better among people who have um, drug-resistant virus or people who have just not responded well to treatment previously. And in this case, a lot of clinical studies show again and again that dolutegravir is, is really the front line of treatment. But coming into the conference, we had heard some uh, disturbing trends out of Botswana that researchers had found some concerns around uh, women who took dolutegravir dur during pregnancy or during conception, and that there were signals of neural tube defects in their children. Um, and so the conference showed that this is this is a, a signal that needs to be studied more, but that this continues to be a really uh, preferable treatment regimen for many. And so there's a lot of work going forward between the WHO and PEPFAR and others to make sure that women understand the choice they have in front of them and that where options are available for people to have a better treatment regimen that, that they they're um, accessible at country level. Finally, the, the last big science story was the river study. Um, and this was looking at the kick and kill strategy around cure. The idea that to attack the HIV reservoir, you could draw the virus out of the reservoir and then try to treat it and therefore re reducing the reservoir. I found that this didn't work, at least in this study. And so we kind of go back to um, to the table on more cure research and understanding do, do we have more avenues for pursuing kick and kill or are we moving more towards broadly neutralizing antibodies? And Tony Fauci's address at the conference made a lot of folks feel that it's really all about broadly neutralizing antibodies now. Thank you. Now this was the, a conference that put enormous emphasis on Eastern Europe and Central Asia. Um, there was a special ministerial organized by the Dutch government Monday prior to the official opening ceremony. Several ministers uh, from Eastern Europe, Central Asia, and other senior ranking officials came. Say a bit about that. Yeah, this was the culmination of a years-long goal. Coming into the conference when we started working with our Dutch partners, one of the first things between the International Aid Society and the Dutch government was an agreement that this conference had to do what we weren't as successful in doing with the Vienna AIDS Conference in 2010, which was addressing the epidemic in Eastern Europe and Central Asia. And so uh, with the Dutch government, um, we put together a plan that went over several years. The Dutch sponsored a number of um, NGOs and community-led organizations in the region and we did a number of work to get abstracts and content and attendees from there so that there would be a very significant presence from the region, both in terms of science, in terms of delegates, and just in the general conversation. I think for those who are on the ground, you saw a really dramatic difference in the content there. You saw a very lively and active civil society sector from the region, um, and you also saw content across the board. What this helped was, was draw greater conclusions about the epidemic in that region, something that has been vague in the past. And you see that in spaces where political will and donors have walked away in Eastern Europe, uh, that uh, um, the virus is rebounding. Um, and you see that particularly true in somewhere like Russia, which is just seeing an exploding HIV epidemic, where pre prevalence is reaching almost 1% of the population. So a lot of the conference focused on how concerning this trend is and how counter it is to what's happening in southern and eastern Africa, where you see many of those countries really in substantive ways tackling the epidemic. Thank you. Now, one final question set on what came out of last week, and then we'll move on to talking about Oakland, San Francisco. 
at a geopolitical level, there were a couple of things that came through loud and clear from the conference last week. One is there's a certain widely shared realism now that achieving the 90-90-90 goals in terms of people knowing their status, getting on treatment, suppressing the virus, doesn't necessarily get to you to a stable victory point. In other words, you have men having sex with men, sex workers, drug those who are injection drug users. You have within that population vulnerable and very difficult to access often adolescent girls and young women. These key populations and young women and girls are exceptionally important in looking at uh, the work that lies ahead and that a rhetoric of the end of AIDS was, was a bit distracting or distorting of the challenges that lie ahead. Another thing that came across related to that was, of course, the press for the universal health coverage, the, the dominance of the sustainable development goals, and the reality that um, money is declining in terms of donor funds by 25% in just since 2012, and a push for really getting countries to become more, uh, more engaged and more uh, in ownership of these issues. One last thing, and before I ask you to comment, is just the continued centrality of the United States role in this. The U.S. dominance in terms of dollars committed with its roughly $8 billion per year, almost three and four donor dollars coming from the U.S. in some source or another, and the leadership, not just programmatically, but in terms of replenishment of the global fund, in terms of the science and R&D agenda. Uh, that came through very loud and clear. Even while we have in, in Washington in power, you know, a populist nationalist government that is skeptical overall vis-a-vis -vis foreign aid and, and multilateral alliances. So it was a mixed picture. France, Canada, Germany showing strong leadership in this period and, and the Dutch showing strong leadership, particularly with respect to women and girls and family planning, reproductive health. So could you offer just a quick set of insights around those broad political and geopolitical issues? Yeah, just quickly, I'd say one of the first times in a long time, I think many of the global powers are speaking from the same song sheet in terms of the fight against complacency. So you saw that conversation happening everywhere, that this isn't so much a matter of our inability through um, tools or through systems to address the HIV epidemic, but it's more around the political will and funding that people question the commitment over the long term. And that's not just international donors, that's also national funding levels. So there was a lot of conversation around that. UNAID uh, beforehand uh, issued a report kind of sounding the alarm on complacency, and, and it was a conversation throughout the conference. Um, but I would say to put that in a specific U.S. context, something that people have pointed out is you really have to look at the administration and Congress in, in two different ways. Congress has remained strongly supportive of the fight against HIV, both Democrat and Republican. We are very fortunate to have um, a real bipartisan response here. And I think you see that in the year-after-year -year commitment. So while we're not seeing the gains that we saw throughout the 2000s in terms of funding appropriations, we do see a, a commitment that that feels deep and, and held firm. Um, and, and I think that the community overall has been able to demonstrate that this funding leads to outcomes. So you saw um, the Swaziland results that were last year that came out at the Paris conference, and you saw the Namibia results that came out this year. Where PEPFAR is funding, they're having real results. The catch is PEPFAR 
happening everywhere, and the world has not come up with a way to respond to the epidemic in places where the U.S. is not doing heavy bilateral work. And so Eastern Europe, Central Asia, Latin America, you know, these are regions that people have not come up with an answer on. And so this question around where we go from here um, is still very much in the air, and, and what we do around these epidemics that are expanding where there aren't large national or international donor institutions intervening. Thank you. Now let's turn to the decision to and the announcement that the International AIDS Conference will be held in Oakland and San Francisco in 2020. Let's start with the question, why Oakland and San Francisco in 2020? Sure. So President Clinton said something really interesting in his remarks on Friday. He referred to San Francisco as sacred ground in the HIV response. And I think there's something really true to that, that, you know, San Francisco, as as everyone knows, is really part of the epicenter with New York of of the beginning fight against the HIV epidemic. Um, It also, however, demonstrates uh, in in the broader Bay Area the great disparities that there have been in our response. So, you know, Oakland and San Francisco, just a a bridge away from each other, um, have had completely different roads for responding to the to the HIV epidemic within each city. And over time, you've seen this very, this very savvy, very progressive, very ambitious HIV response in San Francisco. And you've seen one in Oakland that in recent years has really built up, but in earlier times was playing catch up or, or being ignored entirely. Congresswoman Barbara Lee, a Democrat who represents California's 13th district, which includes the city of Oakland, highlighted these disparities in her remarks at the Amsterdam conference. We are at another turning point. Now, my community of Oakland, California, we've been in the struggle fighting against AIDS for many years. And because of racial and economic disparities in my community and throughout the United States, all too often, people of color have not been at the table. Um, and, and this idea of being able to focus on this disparity and the disparity among the response around communities of color throughout the U.S. was a really important aspect for the International Aid Society in selecting Oakland and San Francisco. Um, we thought it, it, it demonstrated also something that lies at the heart of the response more globally, which is this problem around addressing the response unequally in different locations. Um, and so to be able to, to bring it back to the U.S. and specifically in this context, context felt really important for us at this time. Tell us about the proposal that they put together, because this is, I don't think most people realize that the way in which this decision is taken is not dissimilar from the way that decisions are taken with respect to World Cups or to Olympic hosting of winter or summer Olympics. Say a bit about how that process happens and unfolds and why San Francisco and Oakland were successful. Sure. So we start a bid process about four years before the actual conference. So we did this bid process coming out of the Durban Conference in 2016. Um, And we put an open call out to major cities around the world asking for cities to fill out a very lengthy bid that does everything from logistics, you know, can your city handle a meeting of this size, to, you know, what is the narrative of your city and how are you responding to the HIV epidemic? Each bid requires a partnership between policymakers, scientists, and civil society in each community that is bidding, uh, and it has to come with a a number of of commitments to access for delegates from around the world. And so when we put the bid out for 2020, we saw a notable response from countries, uh, from 
from cities in the global north, but we saw a very tepid response from cities in the global south. And so we spent about six months in a variety of site visits with cities in the global south to try to do a hands-on process to see if we get more bids. Historically, the AIDS conference has tried to swap locations between global north and global south year after year. So this would have been a global south conference. We weren't able to get a city in the end to do a, a bid for the global south. And so we ended up looking at those specifically for the global north. And by far and away, the political commitment, the commitment to logistics and access, the commitment from local civil society in San Francisco was significantly stronger than anything else we looked at. You saw that they had really taken an all of a Bay Area approach and that this wasn't just kind of San Francisco doing its thing and Oakland doing its thing. It felt like um, a whole approach to the AIDS conference. Thank you. Now, at Amsterdam, there was opposition voiced um, against having the conference in 2020 in Oakland and San Francisco, and a number of concerns entered those objections. Um, I think it, at some level it was a anti-Trump expression. In other words, it was a revulsion in a more general way against many of the different things that we've seen over the course of the summer, the separation of children and parents at our southern borders. And then, of course, we had the high diplomacy that much of which was in Europe just prior to the conference, um, Helsinki, uh, Brussels, London, and then prior to that, the, the, the June 12th summit in Singapore with Kim Jong-un. So very high profile, big issues, uh, lots of protests that had happened in just a short a while beforehand in London and elsewhere. The specific concerns had to do, with, as I understand it, with U.S. immigration policy. Now, the travel ban, the migrant ban that had kept the conference away up until 2012 has been lifted. There were voices raising the concerns that perhaps it might be reimposed. But also, there are, in the normal course of these conferences, exclusions of sex workers or people who inject drugs, particularly those who have criminal records. This is an issue not just germane to the United States. There's also obviously special sensitivity around the Muslim ban, which remains in the news with the Supreme Court decisions around the latest decisions with respect to the Trump administration position and continued formulation of its policies in that regard. Can you just tell us a bit about your understanding of how those objections have been raised and how can they be addressed? Sure. L let me say up front, the International Aid Society is strongly opposed to a lot of the the rhetoric and policy around immigration that has come out of the U.S. Um, under the current administration. Um, we are firm believers, though, that the conference is a platform for engagement and activism and that we don't take the conference to cities as a way to celebrate them or simply as a, a platform for praise. This is meant to be critical evaluation and analysis. And, and a lot of times some cities struggle to host the conference because they know this very critical beacon is, is coming to them. Um, with that said, we did not take this decision lightly. This is something we talked about extensively among our governing council, which is like our board of directors. And, and there was serious consideration here and some analysis done into what made the 2012 conference successful. 
we struggle with visas in regardless of what country they're in. And many folks who participate in the Amsterdam conference will know that there were a large number of, of late visa denials related to that as well, even despite our close partnership um, with Amsterdam and with the Netherlands, which is seen as a very tolerant country. That said, the, the visa um, restrictions for the U.S. are very concerning. In particular, what, what's unique about the U.S. is the travel ban um, on sex workers and the broader morality clause that that falls under. Um, we are, are hoping to form, as we did in 2012, a very tight-knit working group to figure out how we can address this at a federal level. And, and I recognize for skeptics listening to this um, under the current administration that, that this may be a very different game than it was then. We still think that there are a lot of ways to have success in bringing people in. In 2012, we were able to have sex workers at the conference. We were able to have drug users at the conference. Um, we were able to have large presentations on both of these topics there, despite what policy was. And so there, there is a lot of hope that we can do that here. Um, with the uh, the Muslim travel ban, the, the country among that grouping that has consistently had a number of delegates uh, come to the International AIDS Conference is Venezuela. Um, and we have been talking already about how we can make sure that we can still serve the needs of folks who are coming from Venezuela to the conference there. You know, right now there are no um, solid on-paper answers to this, but it is a process that is actively underway. Thank you. Um, 2020 will, of course, be our national election year. It's a presidential election year. It will be a congressional election year. There will be many other gubernatorial and state-level elections. So, it, And the conference will fall right in the center of the summertime deliberations as the candidates are consolidating their positions and moving towards the Republican and Democratic conventions. It's very similar to 2012, only, uh, of course, this will be in the current context. Any thoughts on what that may mean in holding the conference um, in that time period? Well, in, you know, there's, there's no... Um mistake that our annual letter this year is, is AIDS is still political. AIDS is always political and is always going to play a role here. Um, and I think that we're fortunate to have a tremendous amount of political support in the state of California. So um, I absolutely think in a national uh, context that HIV has an, an incredibly important role to play. Do I think that this is going to register in the lead up to a 2012 presidential election? Uh, probably not on a national level, but I do think that it'll play in a big way on a state level. Um, and, and we're hoping that the partnerships we've put in place in California will lead to more progressive policies um, coming through the conference. Congresswoman Barbara Lee echoed these sentiments during her closing remarks in Amsterdam. I have to say this is a political struggle, and we have to elect members of Congress and local officials who get it and who will join us in this fight for justice because that is what it's about. It's for justice for everyone. I mean, one thing that, ha that we saw in 2012 that was very encouraging was by bringing the conference to the United States, the participation level by both civil society groups as well as those at state and federal implementing agencies rocketed. In other words, it, because of the cost, the, the much radically lowered cost and inconvenience of participating, that it mobilized vast numbers of folks who were civil civil society, who were uh, implementers from CDC or NIH or any number of federal executive agencies as well as others. You expect to see that? 
We would hope to see that, and I think a lot of our community partners are really fundamental to making that happen. So, and and you see that for conference after conference, where people are able to use the the conference as a hook for key policymakers to make large, broad commitments to HIV. And so you saw in Amsterdam how the um, the the UK minister made an announcement about replenishing the Robert Carr Fund. You saw also an announcement from the Netherlands about the availability. Of of prep and implementation thereof. So, you know, people are savvy in terms of how to use this as a platform for commitments, and, and I'm hopeful we'll have that in 2020 as well. So, any cl- it's still early days, of course, in preparing for 2020 in San Francisco and Oakland. Uh, any parting thoughts in terms of what we can expect? I'm really excited about the commitment of two cities. You know, the the two locations are just about 10 miles from each other, and we intend to to host a meeting that has um, science, activism, Global Village in both settings. So um, people will see as strong of a presence in Oakland as they do in San Francisco and vice versa. So I'm very hopeful that we'll show a model that can really respond to a modern epidemic and across two cities that have very different responses. Thank you. I want to also offer special thanks to two staff at the International AIDS Society, Mandy Segru and Leila Darabi, for their assistance in putting together this podcast. We'll be doing an extended debrief uh, on the outcomes of Amsterdam, August 10th, 9.30 a.m. to 11 a.m. at the Kaiser Family Foundation, a joint CSIS-Kaiser Family Foundation Debrief, it will be webcast live. It will feature Deborah Burks, head of the Office of the Global AIDS Coordinator, Chris Beirer, former president of the International AIDS Society from Johns Hopkins University, Jennifer Cates, vice president uh, and head of global health at Kaiser, and myself. So please come to that in person or online. Oh, and again, congratulations uh, for all that you've achieved and for setting us on this path towards gathering in Oakland and San Francisco in two years' time. Uh, We're delighted at the success you've shown, and we're excited looking ahead. I want to thank those on the line for joining us for today's episode of Take As Directed. We invite you to subscribe to Take As Directed so you'll never miss our latest episode. And for more information on our upcoming events and recent publications, please visit the CSIS.org Global Health Policy Center program page. Thank you.